Unmuddle. Have you heard of them yet? If you haven't, you've got to check them out at unmuddle.com slash colleges. They are disrupting the community college scene. Their course to jobs marketplace is a modern way for community colleges to compete with the big players. Check them out again at unmuddle.com slash colleges. That's U-N-M-U-D-L dot com slash colleges. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Edup Experience Podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio here with you again. And this is a correction introduction. Why? Because I forgot yet again to turn on my microphone. So I had to come back after the episode was recorded and re-record the introduction of my guest today. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. He's CEO of RSE Ventures, Vice Chair at the Miami Dolphins, Chairman and CEO at Omni Channel Acquisition Group, and the Executive Fellow at Harvard Business School. He's also a recurring judge on Shark Tank Seasons 10 and 11. Here he is, Matt Higgins. Despite all those accolades, nobody calls me doctor like they do you. So Matt, you have a Juris Doctor, right? And one of the most curious things of all time in higher education is how uh, folks with a JD, attorneys and such, are not called doctors. Why is it? Why do you think the answer is no, that they're not called doctors? I mean, you've got your ear to the ground. You're getting around here and there talking to all sorts of people. What do you think it is? No, I really think about this subject a lot because I graduated law school and put in the hard work, never practiced a day in my life, never even took the bar exam, so I wouldn't even be tempted to practice a day in my life. That being said, I feel like I can't use Esquire because there's etiquette around that not being a licensed member of the bar. And I can't use doctor because people will say doctor of what? And for whatever reason, JD does not get that, uh, you know, that treatment. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I've wondered the same thing uh, ever since I graduated. You know, maybe it's because you don't have to do a dissertation at the end and you don't publish. Uh, That might be it. Maybe we could introduce that as like a bonus round. Matt, I'm going to give you a uh, bonus question right off the bat here. Speaking of bonus questions, it's unexpected. And don't worry about that. Just give your best answer. There's a, um, this is a higher ed podcast, but this is not a higher ed question. You ready for it? Sure. It's worth a billion dollars here, Matt. And there's no right or wrong answer. If you're going to walk into a room, uh, or maybe you do now, and you're going to have a song playing over the loudspeaker, your entrance music, so to speak, what song defines you, Matt? Uh, that is probably, it's very defiant and rebellious. It would be lose yourself, you know, by Eminem. It's kind of because when I went on Shark Tank and had my greatest imposter moment of my life, you know, of which I have one every morning, but this one happened to be the worst one. Uh, I just remembered back to my days in Queens we can get into this, but really trying to overcome everything I've overcome. And that song like popped in my head as something that was really belligerent and defiant setting aside, you know, Eminem, not very PC, but like just something that resonated with me. And I remember uh, I decided I would put it on a loop and just put headphones on for the next two hours. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I listened to. And it worked. I love it. Talk about your story a little bit, your journey. You know, I was able to go online. I did some research about you. You've got an incredible story really from, you know, uh, ad- you grew up in abject poverty. You came out of uh, poverty by uh, doubling down across in your higher education uh, and perseverance and grit that you had to put in, looking for a life that was better than you had. Uh, talk about your journey to entrepreneur uh, and how education played a part in that. 
Yeah, I'll give you the, the quick synopsis, but my story really is one about um, transcendence through education. So I'm really passionate about this topic because it's defined my entire life. Uh, I grew up really poor in Queens in a little shoebox apartment raised by a single mom who was very smart, but product of a broken home and in many ways, just a broken life. And when I was around nine years old, she got divorced from my dad and was raising four boys by, you know, on her hands and knees, cleaning up, cleaning houses for elderly citizens. And, um, and I watched her go and get her high school diploma, her GD. This is all through the lens of a nine-year-old. She got her GD and then she used her GD to get to Queens College. And she would bring me to the classes and, and uh, I would just sort of watch her go nonstop. And I watched it transform her whole identity to go from somebody who felt never good enough to somebody who finally was told by her teachers that you were, you're very smart, you're gifted. And uh, all she ever wanted to do then was to go to, was to get an education of it. Uh, she went and got her college degree and then went and got a master's in urban studies and then a master's in library science. I got a job in a library. She just never wanted to leave. So for me, if she was the reason why I had an epiphany when I was uh, around 13, 14 years old saying, this is gonna end terribly. I'm watching my mother deteriorate. We have no money. I sleep on a dirty mattress on the floor. Like there's no cavalry coming. And I had an idea that the, at the time uh, you could, if you could drop out of high school and do well enough, you could actually uh, use your GED to go to college. Again, inspired by my mom. So I was like, I'm just gonna do really well in, uh, on the GED. And that's gonna enable me to go to college and go from making you know 375 an hour at McDonald's scraping gum from underneath tables to uh, basically $9 an hour. And I had to, really strengthened my conviction to do something completely crazy because the guidance counselors thought that was nuts. Everyone told me it was nuts. And it was the foundation of my burn the boats philosophy. I basically got left back two years in a row. So by the time the decision came at 16, I had no choice but to go forward. And I took my GED, uh, very lonely time uh, in my life, but I did it. And within two months, I was enrolled at Queens College. And I'll postscript, I returned to my prom as a president of the debate team at Queens College, except I'm only 17 years old and had just finished my first year of uh, college. Amazing. So education was my way out of poverty, but it was also the, more importantly, the thing that gave my mother some dignity in her life uh, before, she, before she died. She had died before she ever got a chance to really do anything with it. But uh, so it's really important to me. You know, one of the things I wanna ask you in a little while is about the whole value of higher education. But talk to me now about how fundamental education was for you as you've achieved success. Um, you've been able to get to the place that you are, uh, again, doubling down on education uh, and then your higher education. How important was higher ed to your journey? It's tough because for me, part of my story is the credentializing that, you know, that education does do, right? Especially with my rather tortured upbringing, you know, Back then, at least, if you dropped out of high school, you were generally perceived as somebody who was either a truant or was going through some turmoil. You know what I mean? There, there was something in your life or something about your level of discipline. So by going to college at night, then getting into Fordham Law, went to Fordham Law at night for four years. I was on law review. There was a degree of, um, of credentializing. So that is true. That's less true than it is right now. But there was also a degree of uh, refining my thinking that that is invaluable. People always say, oh, was that a waste that you went to law school and you know you have that fancy degree in your on your wall and some student loans? I was like, no. I mean, I manage so many lawyers all day long. I not only do I know how to scrutinize their bills, I understand generally what they're talking about, what they're trying to achieve, 
So my view is education is never a waste. I feel like the pendulum has swung a little too far in the direction of hustle culture where you don't need any education. You need no refinement, no training, like an anti-expertise dialogue, which is nice and empowering, but I think it, it doesn't give full credit to the power of education to cultivate your brain and your way of thinking. Yeah. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that the hustle culture, that's right. It's about, it's kind of like a, a, about us trying to find the fastest way possible to get somewhere, hack your way. But sometimes things are worth doing. Uh, the things that are worth doing take time and they take effort and they take sacrifice and grit. And it's this, it's this like grit piece that makes a huge difference uh, and a really big difference in being successful or not. How do you keep grounded now? And your story is one of growing up in poverty. And now, you know, in the spectrum of success, I'd say you're on the extreme side of, of achieving great success. Do you stay grounded as a human? How do you stay grounded as a human? Because it's, I'm imagining it's probably pretty easy to lose yourself in some circles. And, and like you talked about imposter syndrome, how do you stay grounded? How do you talk to the people, so to speak, and stay humble? That's a great question. I hope people perceive me as grounded. I feel grounded. I think it's partly because I was lucky enough to have so many different heady experiences very young in my life. We didn't get to this, but I went from high school dropout at 16 to by 26, the youngest press secretary in New York history. And I was the, one of the first employees of the World Trade Center side. I oversaw the redevelopment. I had a lot of heady experiences very young and was a muckraking reporter and got nominated for a Pulitzer when I was relatively young. Um, but um, my point being, none of those things ever held up juxtaposed against the, the sheer suffering I witnessed as a kid and powerlessness. You know, my mother... My life was always about uh, seeking an intervention for her as a little boy. Like, can't somebody come in and help us? Like, she can't walk. We would spend, you know, nights at the ER. I would study while she was inside. Nothing would ever make a difference. We didn't really have insurance. We would go to food banks, you know, an hour away on a bus because we were embarrassed. Like, I'm not saying this to say feel bad for me. I'm saying I learned very young the power of intervention that if somebody had just lent a hand, it would have changed the trajectory of her life. She would have lived you know, my life would have been different. I say that because when I ask myself every day, what's the highest and best use of Matt Higgins with all this success? And, and the answer is always the same. If I can accumulate power and resources and then redistribute it on behalf of the powerless, that is way more impactful than anything I'm going to do. So I'm not trying to say I want to live my life like a saint. It, I'm grounded because I saw something when I was 16 that I can't unsee, which is what it means when somebody's suffering and has no choice. So I get excited about my career and my life and this platform for, I get to like touch people, you know, you, whether it's through education and sitting one-on-one -on -one with a student and maybe giving them a dose of self-esteem that they might not have possessed by telling them I had imposter syndrome this morning and before I even walked in this classroom or when I went on Shark Tank, like I think because of the way I grew up, I've come to realize there's no shame in life and I get to share that. So I hope I'm grounded. I feel like it. I feel like that introduction was about somebody else, not about me. <laughs> so hopefully I stay that way. I don't think I'm going to change. Yeah, that's right. And by the way, we're going to be calling you Dr. Higgins on the rest of this episode because it's my podcast and I've, uh, well, I, I get to call you whatever I want. And Dr. Higgins sounds great to me, right? <laughs> well, Henry Higgins, right? Wasn't he a Dr. Higgins? My friendly, was he a Dr. Higgins? I don't know if he was. I think that's important, right? I mean, you've earned that success and you've earned it through grit. So many college students right now um, the ones that you're intersecting with at Harvard Business College um, uh, or Harvard Business Schools, I'm sorry, taking on entrepreneurship courses. Uh, you know, I watched an online video of you and you're talking uh, on Shark Tank about entrepreneurs and the kinds of the things 
that they need um, and every entrepreneur needs. And there were three things they pointed out, confidence, empathy, and the ability to take feedback. Those are really important for higher ed right now, especially as we see a lot of, of relevancy for some people looking at higher ed and saying, you know what, college isn't relevant. And there's this now this human skills factor uh, that's really important in life and higher ed does teach it. And those skills are never more important than they are now, especially post-pandemic or whenever the hell post-pandemic gets here. Um, being able to be confident, have empathy, which gosh, I don't think there's anything more important than that now. Um, and having a learning mindset, being able to take feedback. Is that still true today from when you said it? And are those foundational skills that you think every human needs going forward, um, uh, especially uh, for entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. I mean, to stay with the first part, I, I still believe and I think always will that the greatest arbitrage in your personal and professional life is self-awareness, which is nice because it's completely within your control. And that's why I approach everything, every interaction, every diligence with how do I get to the vulnerability and the shame that you're carrying so I can relieve you of it? Because then the work can begin, right? And once you sort of tell somebody it's safe to look within, then I won't judge you. And by the way, here are the things I'm judging myself for at 8 a.m. I think it creates that safe space. So I think uh, that is really, really, uh, really important is self-awareness. And then confidence and humility. I, I like to always talk to those next to each other because you might think they're mutually exclusive. But the, the confidence is the ability to recognize when things aren't going in the direction you originally intended and the humility to accept that and talk about it publicly, because that enables you to act and iterate uh, long before, you know, that Titanic crashes into the iceberg, right? Like, so those skills to me are, will be important forever. As far as higher education, it is interesting what's happened post pandemic. The fact that I just taught my entire course um, online uh, at HBS uh, back in January, it was, you know, 22 classes over four days, but I, I have to say, while I'm glad that we can disseminate information virtually, and that opens up so many different opportunities to reach lots of different people, um, I still had a heaviness during it that I wanted to connect with people one-to-one. -one. I felt a little bit like the students weren't getting the full experience. I felt bad for them. I felt like I couldn't give them my emotional energy through via screen. So I think the we should embrace the fact that it opens up the various, it makes ed, higher education much more versatile to have, to incorporate the ability to teach virtually. But I don't think it's a substitute. That's just my bias. And I think that back to hustle culture, I still think we're peddling this notion that everybody could and should be a self-employed, an entrepreneur and rich is cheapening life. There's a lot of great things that come from just sitting with problems and working on them for a long time in a higher educational setting. So I hope this is just a pendulum trying to find its way um, and we end up in some perpetual hybrid. Yeah, you know, the hope is that more information and narrative comes out about when, the when it comes out about the machines taking over, literally the more human our skills, uh, we show ourselves to be relevant. And higher ed is in the place where you can go and learn a lot of those human skills that you can't learn in other contexts, right? So that that we really double down on being good humans and higher ed plays a, heart, a part in that, especially if you look at the last year, the social culture that we live in has been disrupted in many ways that have uh, disrupted us socially. There's been financial disruption, health disruptions, and humanity and education should be at the center of that recovery. You'd think that that is a precursor for changing the world, right? How do you change the world? It's through education. I really believe that. I'm a big proponent of higher ed. Obviously, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I wasn't or have worked in higher ed for 20 years if I wasn't. Um, so talk to me about that. Well, I have, it's funny. I have a real-time case study because my son 
just went from high school remote to now in person uh, at uh, Indiana, actually. And I'm watching the the immersion socially great, the ripening maturity, got to do your own clothes, you know, the stress work is a lot harder. It's in person, you know, there's expectations. Uh, you have to uphold the values of the institution. Those are all great. And, I, and, and they weren't present six months ago when he was in high school. So as I'm assessing, is this all worth it? You know, what's the value I can watch in real time that there is significant value that would not be obtained if he was just sitting in his you know room in between uh, being a gamer He's not really a gamer, but you get my point. <laughs> and then taking classes. It's just fundamentally different. Talk about your experience at Queens College, because you know it's a it's an important uh, subject. You uh, went to uh, City University of New York System School uh, and had a community college experience. We actually had the president, uh, uh, Frank Wu, for um, um, Queens College on here not too long ago. And we've had so many community college leaders come on and talk about the great work that community colleges are doing now. But there is still this stigma that community colleges are the college of second choice, right? You didn't get into the private university. These kids, they go to or adults, they go to community college. And, and it's, you know, this, uh, oh, you went to the community college. That narrative is changing. And a lot of who changes it and who needs to help change it are graduates of community colleges like yourself that go on to have significant success. How do you see your experience at Queens College in the greater uh, uh, spectrum of your life? And do you see that it was a critical experience for you at the point you needed it to be right at point in time learning. It was the right institution for the right time. Yeah, that um, great question. And this is a positive byproduct of hustle culture in that the esteem of a community college or, you know, or acceptability uh, or of a state school or CUNY uh, has risen because the elitism has dissipated, right? In response to that. So on the one hand, it's like, you know, pox on all the houses, we don't need education. On the other hand, it's like nobody's, uh, people aren't being judged for where they went as much, which I think is fantastic. So my experience at college was kind of extraordinary because you're with all sorts of people, maybe uh, in similar circumstances, maybe not as dire, but all, you know, the whole spectrum of people trying to balance real life with aspiration, right? That's what really, a, especially in a city university system, especially in a community college, it's somebody trying to balance real life with aspiration and have both, as opposed to compromising and settling. This is my life. I was born into it. This is the best I can do. Somebody saying, no, you know, I won't accept it. That was my story. I mean, I, I took me seven years to graduate college so many times in which I was like, I just can't do this. I cannot take care of my mother. She can't get out of bed. I mean, it just was like a disaster. Away from quitting is what we always say about our Yeah, and you know, and there were so many little micro interventions on the part of the administration. I'm with my mother. The my, you know, some of my I don't remember a lot of things from childhood. I block a lot of stuff out, but I do remember the Queens College bursar office when my mother would cash her Pell Grant, and that's what we would live on, right? Like there was, and there was a tender person at the cashier's desk who who would make that happen, or even Shelly Kenny, I think was her name, Shirley Kenny, who was the president of the college, like. My mother had all these empathetic interactions with the institution. I was just trying to help her get through, as did I. So that was my experience. And now, fast forward, I had the honor of delivering my commencement address at my college, which was extraordinary. And um, every year, I uh, underwrite scholarships for single mothers, just so I can go back in time and connect with that, because I know what it takes to have that little version of Matthew by your side while trying to get an education, while trying to better yourself, while dealing with rotten children like we all were. Um, and so... I meet these women, we do these Zoom sessions uh, who are in a similar situation to my mother. And it's like, I feel, uh, to me, I'm, I, you know, I'm standing with like, you know, a version of like LeBron James, 
Like, I can't believe these people. So it matters a lot. It was definitely uh, the right place, right time for me. I wouldn't have been able to go to anywhere. I had to stay close to home to take care of her. So, and that's not an excuse. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I would have liked to have kind of swung at the best, but that's okay. Because uh, to me, it was the best and it gave me an amazing experience. I am Dr. Lorenzo Reyes, Associate Vice President for Workforce Economic and Resource Development at San Juan College. As a founding partner, we value how model can enhance workforce development. Our model brings together community colleges and employer needs to create credentials that lead to jobs with good family-sustaining wages. The future of community colleges is about meeting learners where they are through short-term industry-recognized credentials. This can put them on the path to degrees and new careers while directly filling real workforce needs of employers. As on one college, success matters is more than a tagline. It is at the heart of what we do. And our model gives us one more opportunity for our students and our communities to succeed. Yeah, it's so impactful that you say that right now, right? Especially that mental health is just a huge issue on college campuses, among college students, as they figure out what the heck is uh, learning is going to look like for them in person, on ground, or in the cloud, if you will, some kind of a hybrid, uh, how the byproducts of COVID are going to affect their decision making. And, and as you probably watch as an investor, you're looking across industries like higher education and in particular in higher education everybody has gone on uh, sorry gone online right so it used to be where online was the differentiator now everybody goes online so a student who's looking at four schools now has 40 schools looking at them so we have a reversal of the supply and demand economics where the consumer has so much more a sway and yes i do believe con uh, students are consumer that's my personal opinion and so there's much more choice on where they want to go to school there's tons of competition new entrants and so on. There's an enrollment cliff coming up with uh, declining birth rates that's gonna uh, give higher education less students overall. Uh, so how do you see the competition in higher ed? Uh, because so many schools have moved online and many more um, will double down on their online learning as a foundational way to teach their student body. So what's competition look like and how do you see it for higher ed? I think, um, and, I, and it, this is not dissimilar from what I'm seeing in other areas of the economy or business, there is an expectation of frictionless first, right? That, that whatever the underlying activity I'm about to pursue, whether it's to buy something at a store, that I want to pursue it in the path of least resistance. We're shedding all the baggage of FaceTime and, and unnecessary things that used to fill our lives because we've, we've all, you know, come close to something we never thought we'd see and haven't seen in a hundred years. I mean, I had COVID, I had pneumonia in both my lungs. I was really sick, you know, I kept it to myself, but it was, a, it was a rough, almost three weeks. So that forces a degree of reckoning with all these things about our lives that were unnecessary. That isn't going to change. That's good. So, so every institution, including higher education is going to be held to this sort of frictionless standard where the consumer is questioning, but why, why do I have to do it this way? And if this way doesn't serve the objective, so that's one, two, it's a corollary. The first utility is always going to be a focus is what's the utility of this, of this activity. And so, well, I think higher education pre pandemic could have been more formulaic, right? Well, this is just what we do. We have econ, you know, whatever, this is what you'll take your second semester. They're going to have to be really careful to focus on delivering value and utility. That to me will be the landing spot, right? You're going to cultivate the brain, but also make sure you're leaving with some practical area that could actually enable you to manage an NFT project and understand how to manage a Discord community. What does it all mean? Crypto. Like, I think there's going to be a lot of sector expertise uh, bubbling up because 
I don't believe otherwise the consumer will settle for less because they're able to get that practical experience elsewhere. So that's probably a good thing because that means people will be more equipped to do yeah. something with a degree, be able to monetize it. So hopefully that's a landing between friction, frictionless and uh, utility. So one of the things happening in higher education right now that's being discussed, I actually think it's being dis discussed across industries, is the concept of the great resignation. You know, people looking at coming out of the coronavirus pandemic saying, you know what, I don't want to return to work. I like the freedom of online or I'm reevaluating my entire career trajectory. Maybe I wanted to start a business. Maybe I started a business now and I don't want to do it anymore. There's just a lot of indecision amongst people on what their uh, futures are going to be and what fears they have. Are you seeing that in other industries? We're seeing it in higher ed at the highest levels of presidents resigning and so on or retiring, I'm sorry, because of uh, of mental tiredness, uh, dealing with multiple stakeholders that they deal with. What does it look like across business and industry? Is that something that's common now where people are kind of just up and leaving uh, their jobs? No, oh, it's fascinating. I mean, it's happening everywhere. I think it's a partly a reflection of this collective malaise where we said, what's the point, right? They're just, that's part of it. Also just the rhythm, of, you know, a seal was broken. It's very hard to go back. Uh, and, and also, especially if somebody's trying to impose pointless friction and go back to the way things were, then there's a rebellion saying, I'm not going back. I can't unsee the, that there was a better way to do it. That didn't have a commute that was, you know, working from home. So that's one part of it, but I think a little bit of, you know, what's the point. And I, that's going to morph into, Hey, why not? Like from a malaise to a risk-taking culture to also a premium on autonomy, right? Cause I think a lot of people, especially if you were blessed with a white collar job, you experienced a long period of more autonomy in your life that enabled you to restructure things around your priorities. It's very, no one wants to give that up. So what's the way not to give it up? Uh, structuring your professional life around freedom and autonomy. So the, the, there'll be a pivot from what's the point to why not? I'm actually working on a TV show that captures that impulse that helps people who are looking to um, quit their job and start their own business. I help mentor them through, we'll see what comes of that. But um, ideally that gets off the ground, but that's the overall premise. So I think that's largely a good thing. I have structured my entire professional life in pursuit of one goal, which is more autonomy, because I think I make better choices and I'm happier and I'm more creative to the universe, the more uh, autonomy I have and less uh, inhibited my decisions are. Also probably because I experienced powerlessness as a child, but that's my goal. So I'm very passionate. Anybody out there listening to this saying, if you have it in you, uh, you know, go for it and don't be afraid. Don't believe that you need to have all the solutions to everything mapped out. I believe the reverse that problems beget solutions. I tend to put myself in situations where I don't really have all the answers because I trust in my ability to figure it out. My back is against the wall. You know, one of the questions I have for you is how is it possible for you to do the number of jobs that you do? As I look through the list of introductions that I that I gave, you know, the list of introduction uh, titles, CEO of RSV, RSE Ventures, Chairman and CEO of Omni Channel Acquisition Group, you're an executive fellow at Harvard, vice chair of the Miami Dolphins, which which one of those is the least important? Is it the vice chair of the Miami Dolphins? You know, the important job, uh, what, which, how do you balance that? Great question. And I don't want anybody to infer from that. First of all, it looks incoherent too. It looks far-fetched. The reality is I, I'm pretty good at scaling. I give myself permission to do something I'm really passionate about. And then I ask myself this question, what is the highest and best use of me today? What can I do today that I couldn't do yesterday that brings me closer to what I want to do tomorrow? That's constantly changing. Like after I went on Shark Tank, uh, you know, that that's a different version of Matt, right? It's a high, more higher profile. Well, 
then I turned myself to the ambition I had of teaching and I didn't want to teach anywhere. I wanted to teach it at Harvard. So, uh, you know, I worked with the institution to come up with, you know, of course, like I'm, I'm cons I think the joy of life is in the striving and anyone who's ever run a marathon, like I have knows exactly what I'm talking about. I remember finishing the New York city marathon. I'm like, why am I depressed? I should be relieved, but now I'm depressed. And it's because the joy was in the pursuit. I've yeah. accepted that a long time ago. Now, you don't want to be the person, like my partner says, a grasshopper who jumps from things to things and doesn't finish what they started. So I, I, I believe I've become expert at scaling, stressing myself right to the brink, but not to the point of being ineffective. And then, you know, that little list of titles that you read off, there was a time when I was heavily involved in the dolphins and you know now it's more ceremonial so that doesn't take time right like i'm always i'm always juggling i mean I, and i'm really hard on myself to make sure i'm delivering but um i probably have collected a bunch of titles at this point um, and i'm not going to say you know we i don't want to peddle a lie either like yeah. i am under a lot of duress in order to be successful but when i'm not under that duress i find that i'm i'm a little melancholy and not that i'm an adrenaline junkie it's that i just have decided that the joy is and that perpetual pursuit of a life of growth. The way to do it is to be highly intentional on the things that matter most to you that then can accommodate the work. Like my children are the most important thing to me in the world. My wife is my best friend. And so we have this universe that we've created that gives that, that, be, that keeps me grounded and it also creates boundaries. And I have a lot of room outside of that to then pursue what I want professionally. So uh, final two questions for you, uh, Matt. Uh, number one, what did I not ask of Dr. Matt Higgins that needed to be asked. Anything you have going on, anything you want to plug, uh, anything that I just didn't ask you, I should have found in my research and just failed outright. And you could tell me if you really want to. And um, and then number two, what do you see as the future of higher education? Um, so number one, great question. I'm going to do a plug for something that matters a lot to me. Um, I I really enjoyed going back to Queens College and kind of leaving a piece of myself during that commencement speech. Uh, it was called Tacking and it was dedicated to my mother. So I crave doing that again. So anybody out there who thinks that I'm worthy, um, I'm going to plug myself because it was such a great spiritual moment for me to connect with students at that, at that you know, incredible inflection point, right? Uh, so that's number one. And then um, number two, I think the future of higher education is what we talked about a second ago. It's this, it's this evolution into a hybrid between reducing friction from the system, which pulls more people in, right, which is great less elitism as to what institution you're going to, just more of a focus on are you educated as opposed to where were you educated or how are you educated? Also great because pulls people with uh, non-traditional quote unquote circumstances like myself into a system and levels the playing field. And then the second thing, which is also great, focus on utility and, and skills. They could be soft skills, but hard soft skills where you come out of, of education actually knowing how to do something and you're more employable. I think that's was the catalyst for the beginning, even though we look at it as a pandemic is what's forcing us to change, question the value proposition of education. I think it's it's before that. If you graduate from college with a four-year degree, you spent all this money and you were sold a dream. And then it turns out that unless you're going on a traditional path of being in finance, a lawyer or a doctor, it's hard to actually get a job because you have no skills. Like that would be good if we could change that. It would be great if you could leave college actually having something somebody would hire you with. You know, Matt, it's a total honor to have you today. And I really mean that, especially with everything that you have going on. To take out time out of your day, talk to our audience and to me about your successes is just uh, a honor, a really honored, uh, especially since, um, you know, there's such a foundation uh, within higher ed in what you're doing, entrepreneurship, um, 
and of course, higher education is our main listening audience, and you have a foundation of higher education. It was just a great match to have you on the podcast. I really, really appreciate you. Uh, thank you so much. Um, and this has been another episode of the Edip Experience with your guest, Dr. Matt Higgins. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just edupped. Community colleges are major forces in and of themselves, and I figured that there's nothing a group of community colleges couldn't do in a consortium the likes of, of Unmuddle, that we could be unstoppable in a, uh, in a collective of community colleges across the country, like-minded uh, and serving people's workforce training needs. That was the excitement for me, that a, a collective of community colleges could do almost anything even better than each one of us individually is already doing it, like workforce development, which we all are.